Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week I talked to George Eaton and Stephen Bush about the Labour leadership race, the Labour deputy leadership race, and maybe even a Tory leadership race a little bit later down the line. Then Barbara Speed, Anna Leskovitz and Caroline Crampton talk about motherhood, comedy, and why Orange is the New Black isn't as smug as you think from reading internet think pieces about it. The Labour leadership and deputy leadership races are now in full swing, so I'm going to turn to our Staggers editor Stephen Bush and our politics editor George Eaton to catch up on the latest. George, I'm going to go to you first. We've had the first Labour leadership hustings uh, in Nuneaton, which was the the swing seat that when when it went Tory, we really knew on the night of May 7th that it was all over for Labour. Um, Was there a clear winner out of the four candidates? So just for anybody who's not aware, that's Yvette Cooper, Andy Burnham, Liz Kendall and Jeremy Corbyn. No, there wasn't. No, no one really dazzled. And there's quite a lot of gloom among Labour MPs who feel it's a notably weaker field than in 2010, an election which, of course, didn't produce a a winning candidate at the general election. Um, I thought of the candidates, Yvette Cooper had the best night. She was polished, relaxed, uh, had a clear grasp of of policy. Um, I think Andy Burnham struggled to take control of the debate. You could see his, his frustration. He was interrupting the presenter a lot. And he did make a slip when he said the party always comes first and, and Liz Kendall quite smartly interjects and says, no, the country actually does. And he's being attacked for that this morning in, in, in the press. Um, how much that would actually damage him in a Labour leadership contest, I don't know. And I think Liz Kendall cast herself as the teller of hard truths, taking quite a hawkish line on the deficit, saying that Labour really needs to, to wise up and, and, and come to terms with the changes it needs to make to appeal to Tories. But has she gone too far she talked about to... an Australian-style points system for non-EU immigration, didn't she? Which is yes. kind of like a UKIP policy, basically. Um, I thought the interesting thing, I don't know how you felt about this, Stephen, was the fact that, as George said, there's a Cooper pitch, which is, I am co- I might not be thrill-ride, but I am competent, I'm sensible, I'm, you know... I'm, I'm, Liz Kendall's pitch is, as you say, the teller of hard truths, George. You know, she, I, I'm making a, a Blairite, really, pitch. Jeremy Corbyn, again, very easy to show what, what he stands for. One thing I didn't get was what is the one line pitch for Andy Burnham? Did you, do you do you know what that is? I mean, it's basically, I am Ed Miliband, but I can eat a bacon sandwich. I'm you know I'm not a North London policy wonk. I'm a 
Liverpudlian who's come to North London to become a policy wonk. Um, <laughs> it's a beautiful dream. It's like a Cinderella yeah. story for our age. But but that, I, I mean, I, I tend to agree with you, but that's I'm sure if you asked the Burnham camp, they wouldn't concur with that. So what do they say in response? I think their thing is that they, in some ways, are running the same campaign they ran last time in that they say he is the most appealing candidate, he is the candidate with the most warmth, the most. he's a guy who comes across as a nice guy. Um, one of them said to me, they said, well, you know, you know, yes, you can make fun of his whole, oh, I'm not a Westminster elite. Well, Nigel Farage went to Dulwich College mm-hmm. and he successfully pitched himself to that demographic as, you know, someone who's, you know, an ordinary ordinary guy from, from an ordinary place. Uh, I mean, the the... The thing I think all of the candidates seem to be forgetting is, you know, David Miliband won the leadership election in the one section of the Electoral College that's left. He won the membership 55 to 45. Which one of them is trying to rebuild that 55%? I suppose Andy Burnham is basically trying to get the 45% who backed Ed Miliband, plus get an extra five points somewhere from people who think he looks like a prime minister. Which is where his his habit of being kind of uh, prissy towards uh, moderators. You know, he got angry with Andrew Harrop at the first first hustings. He got a bit cross with Kevin Maguire at the GMB hustings, and he got very grumpy with uh, with oh God, Laura Kunzberg. Laura Kunzberg at, uh, last night at the Newsnight hustings is not is not a great look. It doesn't look prime ministerial. It looks a bit like David Cameron on a bad day, but that is not necessarily the same the as red looking... face slightly yeah. uh, bullying david cameron which i know i think we've talked before about how we don't like george i just think probably for people who aren't um as as wonkish as us uh who have normal lives where they do normal things uh, to pick up stephen's point about the membership now voting can you just run us through what what the difference is between the rules last time about the, the sort of essentially the, the mps losing their golden check like mm. the mps are uh, you know, they've only got as much say as any you know, Tom, Dick or Harry now, right? That's right. So last time around you had an electoral college where MPs and MEPs had a third of the votes, affiliated trade union members had a third, and ordinary Labour Party members had the remaining third. Um, and you had some people who could have as many as 10 votes if they were members of a trade union and socialist society and mm-hmm. an MP and a Labour Party member. That's all gone now. Everyone's vote is, is worth the same. And so that means Westminster's are a lot less important. So Andy Burnham got the most endorsements from Labour MPs, but that counts for much less than it did in the past. Mm. And it means the, the race is uh, already quite unpredictable because most people agree there's no standout candidate. There's no one there who could obviously um, beat the Conservatives at the next election. And um, in terms of the, the mm. union influence, I mean, you know, I'm sure that we'll be hearing a lot about, you know, the union candidate. How much does that mean anymore in a, in a world where you know only a very small number? Is it 1,200, 1,200 1, people have so- signed out as, as supporters um, from that basis? You know, is there a, is there a meaningful union vote in any sense? Uh, it doesn't look like it at the moment. I mean, very few uh, trade unionists have so far signed up, and uh, union endorsements will count for much less than in two thousand and ten, when to the fury of. David Miliband's campaign, uh, the trade union sent out ballot papers with promotional material for Ed Miliband. Mm. So unsurprisingly, uh, most trade union members voted for Ed Miliband. That, of course, swung the election for him. Um, But this time it may also be an insult in terms of how far they would be prepared to go politically to distance themselves from the trade unions. That is a question. Um, The big strategic question of this election is... um, what is which part of the political spectrum does Labour need to occupy to win again? Mm-hmm. And you can see the, the difference most sharply between Andy Burnham and, and, and this Kendall. Andy Burnham said of the last Labour manifesto, it was the best one he'd ever stood on. 
um, Liz Kendall quite clearly takes takes a very different view. <laughs> takes a different view. An excellent, hard-working euphemism there. Um, Stephen, I just want to come to you. It was like a little miniature football transfer deadline day for you yesterday. I'm, I'm guessing that's what football deadline transfer day is. Um, when we had the Labour leadership nomination. So Roshanara Ali was... was the, 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 and she was on 22 votes, 24. I think? 24 votes. So we knew that she had to make 35. She decided at 10 to 12, I think, then to... To, to pull out and allowing her votes to be redistributed. So we've now ended up with a deputy leadership race that looked like it's going to be a two-horse race of Tom Watson and Caroline Flint. Uh, Flint is now also going to accommodate... It's now going to it. Stella, Creasy, Stella Creasy, Angela Eagle and Ben, ben Bradshaw. Bradshaw. So the, the front runner there is, is Tom Watson, who got by far the most nominations. But how do you think the dynamic of that's going to play out now? I think... The thing about Labour's preferential voting system, so they use the alternative, well, they use a single transferable vote, so you rank all of the candidates and then you have to get 51% to win, is when you have that many candidates, suddenly actually the final outcome becomes effectively a wild card. Because the thing people sort of forget is it's not have you got the most second preferences, it's whose second preferences get knocked out first. Um, you know, in the last deputy leadership race, the two candidates at the bottom were only about a percentage point behind. But if you knocked them out in the reverse order, every other candidate would then have fallen out in a different order to the one they were knocked out by. There are now so many candidates that, yeah, so obviously, yeah, so I reckon probably Tom Watson starts with about 31% of the vote, Stella Creasy about 30% of the vote, and then the rest will kind of take up what's left. But then who gets knocked out first? If it's Angela Eagle who gets knocked out first, then you assume there will be some people who... Oh yeah, There are some people in the Labour Party who uh, are, are very keen on having a, a, a deputy leader from an LGBT background who have uh, some doubts about uh, uh, Tom Watson, the frontrunner. And those will presumably transfer to Ben Bradshaw, but does that then mean that Caroline gets knocked out? And does that mean that her votes from what you might describe as Labour's old right uh, will transfer to Tom Watson, who, you know, back in the day used to be a warrior from that bit of the party? Or will more Blairites back her and that will transfer to the Stop Tom candidate, which by that point will be Stella Creasy? It is basically now a free-for-all because we just don't know what order those people will be knocked out in. And you mentioned having two gay candidates on the deputy leadership ballot. One thing that we don't have on either the leader or the deputy leader ballots is that somebody who's not white, somebody who's black or minority ethnic, do you think that at any point that is going to become an issue? Is it? Is there going to be soul searching? Is there going to be fundamentally, uh, you know, a, a caucus in the party that is annoyed about that and that will bang a drum sufficiently hard to cause problems for for the leadership? I, I think the problem with the way the Labour Party selects people is because they can effectively fix the number of MPs they have. So in Edmonton, they arranged to have an all-minority shortlist. Obviously, they have, you know, many all-women shortlists. And they are both great ways of making sure that your numbers are, are, are good. The one thing they're not good at is they're not good at ensuring that you have particularly high-quality candidates. Yeah, I think, yeah, there are two arguments. One, I don't actually agree with this. I think Rishnara Ali was, is a very strong, very interesting politician. But there's the argument that Rishnara Ali wasn't really up to it and wasn't as impressive as any of the uh, white candidates who got on the ballot. In that case, that's slightly troubling for Labour because you can name five or six very good ethnic minority conservative politicians, partly because one of the things David Cameron has done is he's gone out and tried to recruit people. He's gone out and dragged people from the city, from the small businesses. They said, yeah, actually, I want you to be a Tory MP. And they've sort of done their best to get those people in. Mm. 
Yeah, whereas the Labour Party kind of goes, oh, we've got this natural monopoly of ethnic minority votes and we'll select what we, we're given. So, you know, they have a lot more women, but they haven't done anything to get someone like Ruth Davidson, who wasn't even a Tory member when David Cameron became leader and is now one of their brightest hopes to get in. So, but I just think that they'll probably be quite happy doing, oh, you're not pal, oh, racist fans. Um, I don't think the crisis will become acute yet. But I think it is interesting because there are so many. You know, it's not just Sadie Javid. There's Sam Gima, who's kind of on the foothills of camp. And there is, within the 2015 intake, you know, um, Seema Kennedy, Alan Mack. There are a lot of really talented ethnic minority politicians there. On the Tory side. On the Tory side, yeah. So it becomes more and more difficult to, to say, well, obviously we're the anti-racist party when, if you look at our structures. Yeah, I think that's, I think it's, I think there'll be a, a huge outcry from feminists uh, if it ends up being an all-male leader, deputy leader. And yeah, I mean, Harriet Harman had talked about wanting to kind of properly institute that and she didn't get that through. But I think there'll be a feeling that, is this really what we want the Labour Party to look like in, in 2015? George, I'm just going to finish by asking you your PMQs. Mm. Um, Osborne was standing in for Cameron Um there is a sort of suspicion that Cameron kind of, you know, he arranged a meeting to let him have a crack at it up against Hillary Benn, the shadow foreign secretary. How did Osborne look? Did he look like the obvious next Tory leader? Um, I don't think he he was quite at that level. I think it's still a very open contest, but I think he performed well enough, um, with the exception of a rather unfortunate and ill-judged joke at the start when he said, um, we're relieved there's no Ben in the Labour leadership contest, but there are plenty of Benites. It's a joke about Jeremy Corbyn. And it went down, I mean, it wasn't a good joke to begin with, but it seemed particularly um, out of place and ill-judged in response to a question on suicide bombing from Hillary Benn. Uh, but for the rest of it, um, he, he was perfectly competent. He looked, he looked solid. He wasn't as fluent, as relaxed a performer as David Cameron, but that's not surprising. But um, he didn't look completely out of place standing in for Cameron at, at the dispatch box. And he will be doing that um, more often in his new role as first secretary of Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. States, and it's no coincidence that David Cameron, his great friend, has given him that position. And it does mean that, similar to Gordon Brown, he has the advantage of being the so the, the first one equals yes yeah. the 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 sort of incumbent successor to but in the, great contrast to Gordon Brown he doesn't appear to be sort of kind of knocking on David Cameron's door every night going oh come on though it's my turn now come on though it's my turn now yes and I presume that the the expectation is that there will be no coronation there there, there could not be no so I mean the Brown. most Tory MPs think it will be um, Osborne against Boris at the moment so the way it works unlike in Labour system is uh, as many candidates go forward and as 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 they like and then the Tory MPs whistle them down to just two who then go forward to a straight vote of, of the membership. Well um, I'm sure we'll be bringing our listeners far more exciting um, news on all of those leadership elections uh, as we particularly as we head towards recess although there is a budget to go so there is the possibility of, of some non-party uh, politics stuff happening but for the moment I'll say thank you very much to George and Stephen.
Crampton and I'm here with Barbara Speed and Anna Leskovich to talk about Orange is the New Black, which is a Netflix television series which has made quite a lot of news in the last couple of years for several reasons, partly because it's uh, female dominated, it's uh, an internet only uh, web originating TV series. The three of us have all really enjoyed it at various points and also perhaps not enjoyed it at other points. Um, we are going to try not to spoil it too heavily for you, uh, but we are going to talk up to and about episode five of series three. So if you are desperate not to find out what's happened, perhaps skip the next ten minutes or so. But anyway, let's get into it. Barbara, let's kick off with you. Um, what, did, what have you made of series three so far and how it contrasts with what we've seen before? Yeah, I've really enjoyed this series so far. Um, it's a bit lighter than the last series, which I found quite kind of dramatic and quite kind of prison drama-y. And I think I liked the series because it was a bit different from traditional prison dramas where it's very kind of stressful and yeah, <laughs> angry. I, I, I um, agree with that, actually. I found mm. it very it was refreshing to that it was some people who happened to be in prison rather than prisoners, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. And I quite liked the variety of having kind of a bit of a focus on why they got in there that was more of a trope in the first series I guess where they talk about the the biggest question you always want to know is why are you here um but I think that that's worth continuing because I think the context of their lives is actually really really interesting um and um, what do you reckon Ella? yeah I do I agree with everything that's been said about it being a lot lighter than last series I actually think sometimes what I liked about the second series was how intense it could get um but one thing I think that's really nice is that you get to know these characters so well and they're really not afraid to sort of put some characters on the back burner for like episodes and episodes. You might not see them and then they'll come back, but they've still got these like rich inner lives going on the whole time. And the very great use of flashback that they use, because that's, that's something that comes with a kind of contained drama, isn't it? Mm -hmm. That you um, you put your characters in this, in this case, literally a prison. If you want to show anything about the rest of the world, you have to do it through the medium of flashback, which they do a lot I reckon to varying success. What do you reckon, Barbara? Yeah, I think, I mean, the first thing to say is I think the flashbacks work really well. What doesn't, I think, work so well is when, say, Piper's family, you just get a scene with them outside the prison. I think it's good that they got rid of that. I think the flashbacks work really well when they're in a very different sort of time and place. And I think they, they play really well with when you think, gosh, I don't even know what character that is. And this can go too far, but I, I like how they sort of challenge your expectations slightly. And I think sometimes they play with it a bit so the crime isn't what you think the crime might be. So yeah, I think it works well when it sort of subverts what you think you know about the character already. You mentioned Piper there, and I think we should tackle that actually. So for those who don't know, Piper is... I'd say originally the main character, I don't think she is anymore, at least only in name, is the sort of white, privileged, rich woman who go ends up in this prison uh, because of drug offences committed much young, when she was much younger and she's taken this kind of plea deal where she gets a reduced sentence. And in the first series, at least, she, hers are the eyes through which you experience this alien world that is a women's correctional uh, institution. Um, I don't like her. <laughs> no. I don't think we're supposed to like her. But I, I don't even like to hate her. I just hate her. Um, and I feel like I can't be alone in that, given that they've given her less and less of a role. Yeah, I think they've really learned from the fact that when they started the show, the sort of interesting dynamic they tried to set up was like, here's a blonde, white, middle-class woman in prison. <laughs> and actually, when you've got all these like really interesting... Um, 
backstories and lives that actually do address like quite big structural questions really intensely because you're in this microcosm where everything's amplified that story just becomes really boring and like mm. there actually isn't much tension there it's just like yep nobody expected to be here and whining about your parents and stuff is just boring to us not in a like oh how funny you you've got problems that you think are problems that aren't problems but just genuinely there's actually boring. A really i think um because i'm a couple of episodes ahead, ahead of you i think there is actually a really good bit where they kind of play with that where um i've forgotten her name the woman who's pregnant daria 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 that's her name um she you know she's got this dilemma where you know she's basically got two options for her baby either it goes to her family or it goes to the father's family and the father's family is much better off and it would potentially have a much better life although no connection to its kind of heritage and family um and although it's not the real father not the right? real father yeah, it's a very complicated, complicated spanner in the world. <laughs> but anyway um she asks piper for advice she's like what was it like to grow up with money will was it better um and and like, did you live oh and they're playing that game you know where it's like tinker taylor sort of like rich man poor man like she's like what was it like to grow up in a mansion and piper's like it wasn't a mansion how many bathrooms did it have five <laughs> you know so they play yeah. with that whole thing and then and then the end of the conversation someone who's over here just turns around and goes can you hear yourself when you talk and mm. that's the end of the scene so they do yeah. kind of play with that which yeah. i don't think yeah. they were doing before but i think you i think maybe you're right that it wasn't made as clear from the beginning but i think you can give them a little bit more credit than that because the creators have explicitly said that she was our trojan horse like we mm. could sell a thing to the network, which is based on this book, which is very much "I am a blonde woman in prison." Lol, lol, lol. I love fashion, um, and but I think <laughs> the creators, the yeah, the and show, I think yeah. the creators saw more than that in the story itself, and were like, "We can go further with this, but we maybe need to start in this slightly more limited way." And then I think the way they made her so unlikable is actually really clever because it forces you to just be like, "That is not the interesting story here at all." Like I think they've done quite a good job of sort of really developing it in terms of the focus of the yeah that's a really good point that they like said this is the acceptable face of like prison tv shows mm. and then actually said but it's boring and you'll much more enjoy yeah the rest it's, of it's this almost series. like if it had been incredibly challenging from the beginning i think maybe some people would have really enjoyed it but it might not have become such a mainstream thing it's obviously a shame when you have to like trick people yes, <laughs> into it but there's also i think a value in that that it's straddled both like very mainstream taste but is also something you've just never seen before but that's kind of a bit upsetting actually that even something mm. that is netflix commissioned it's a netflix mm. original so they're not even trying to get it shown on a major american network or even cable where there, there are commercial pressures or anything like that you would have thought if there's anywhere that you can just say yeah we want to do an ensemble drama with no white star that would be the place you could do it right mm. but hopefully maybe this means that next time the person yeah. who says i have a show about people of all colors and all sexualities and all genders they'll be like well i have this success story that i can point you yeah. towards and maybe they've forged a bit of and a we path. actually don't need a piper well something that um we should just touch on that something that i was surprised when i came to watch series three was between the last series and the one that's just come out now, um, there was so much media coverage. There was um, Laverne Cox, who plays the main trans character in it, um, was on the cover of Time. There was the trans tipping point. There was so much kind of issue-based commentary around it, which inevitably, I mean, think pieces bring me out in hives. You know, inevitably, I was going to feel a bit fatigued with this. And I started to blame the show for this, even subconsciously. So then when I saw it was coming back, I was a bit sort of like, oh, are we, is that where we're going back to? And I feel kind of a 
bad about that because I, I am, I am really enjoying it. It is fundamentally quite good television. It's really good entertainment, and I'm blaming it for the way the media has reacted to it. Yeah, I think that's a good example of that was in the Mother's Day episode. Um, Which is the first one in the Yeah, in the, right, in the yeah. very first one. Um, Laverne Cox's character is uh, a hairdresser in the prison and she's giving people haircuts if they've got their children coming to see them and some inmates are pretending they have children just because they want a haircut. And um, one of the characters says to her, like, oh, how does Mother's Day work for you, you know? And she says something like, being a lady man. And obviously Laverne Cox's character is like, oh, no, don't say that. But also it's dealt with so it's clear that this is a conversation between friends who mm. love each other and there's nothing like mean behind it. It's very beautifully done. And uh, yeah, it's just a great show for that. Which is, yeah, which is nice. And it's good to be reminded that off the internet, off Twitter, that is how real people talk to each other. But um, one last question for you both is how, how are you watching this? Because obviously with it being on Netflix, if you mm. wanted to, you could watch the entire series in one night or even in a weekend. Um, I will admit I did do that with the second one. It felt, I watched the whole thing in a weekend. And I think I said this to you the other day that um, there was this terrible moment when I I finished the penultimate episode on a Sunday night at 1 a.m. And and then there was this moment where I thought I could go to sleep now because I have to go to work in the morning and that would be the sensible thing to do. Or I could watch the last one, <laughs> by which time I'd already pressed play. Yeah. Well, you um, don't even need to press play. It just keeps rolling. That's yeah. what Netflix wants me to do. Netflix doesn't yeah. want me to work. But, um, but I haven't felt like that with the third one. No, well, I think possibly what I didn't like about the intensity of the second one is that when it's that kind of box set experience, it just becomes a bit too much. And I sort of burn out because I think I probably watched it much more quickly than I'm watching this series because you just wanted to know what happened so much. Um, whereas with this one, I have done like a couple of episodes at a time so far, um, which I think is probably because it's slightly more sort of sedate and each of the episodes is more self-contained, I think. Uh, but I'm probably enjoying it more for that, I would say. Yeah, it's definitely got more space to breathe and they're like, they're sort of looking at things from more of a like motify point of view. So in the episodes that I've seen, it's all been about like motherhood and how far people's mothers contributed to what they did maybe in an abstract way or a direct way. Um, and I think that's really nice that they can kind of take some space to be like, let's consider other issues of sort of surrounding prison rather than like, let's consider who's running the kitchen, etc, mm, etc. Yeah, yeah, the sort of micro day-to-day issues. Mm. Although I do have to say, I do quite like some of that, the, uh, the sort of more soap opera mm. elements of it. Yeah, I said to you I was hoping that it was going to take a really dark turn when uh, one of one of the plot points is some of the guards get their hours cut and also there's a new job going uh, for some of the prisoners that's sort of shrouded in mystery and I was like they're going to make the prisoners guards it's going to be like the Stanford prison experiment (laughs) everyone's going to turn on each other and horribly abuse each other it's going to be amazing Uh, that that didn't happen it was probably a good decision from a a show writing point of view probably would have gone a bit too clockwork orange (laughs) quite quickly if that had happened Yeah. yeah Anyway, thanks very much, Anna and Barbara. We encourage you to watch it. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast, presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by Anna Leskovitz. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.